This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. Uh, we welcome you this uh, Tuesday in February to the Bible Line. So glad that you can be with us. And if you are joining us for the first time for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions and trying to respond to each one biblically. So if you need help, give us a call, 843-525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Rick, let's go ahead and we'll jump in and get started. Indeed, Pastor, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning, Pastor. Thank you. Um, I have a question. A few years ago, someone called in asking about demons, and I didn't hear the whole discussion, but I do remember that you said the only book that you would recommend regarding demons was by Merrill Unger, Demons in the World Today. Right. Well, he has written another book uh, that I found, What Demons Can Do to Saints. And a few friends and I are reading that book in light of what's going on in the world today. It's very enlightening, full of scripture. One chapter is entitled, uh, Can a Demon Invade a Saint? Right. A True Believer. And he says yes. Right. If he continues to true, if he continues to true sin. So the question is, is that true? How far can a demon go in a believer's life? He mentions sometimes God actually takes a believer's life because of that continuation in sin. Thank you. It's it's a great question. Merrill Unger's uh, book that I recommended is still probably the most complete work uh, in terms of demonology. So it's I think it's helpful to a lot of people. Um, but in fairness to Dr. Unger, who's of course been dead for a long time. Uh, and he wrote a lot of books. He wrote over 40, 50 books. Um, he, he died, if I remember, in like 1980 when I was at uh, starting at uh, Duke University. He went to DTS, uh, where I went to school much earlier. Um, he, he was born around, I think, 1910 or so. In either case, uh, Dr. Unger uh, is a great, was a great theologian, did some really excellent works, uh, I would say, in fairness to him, that you know it's he's easy to misread, and so you have to read a number of his books to get a full picture. So let's uh, let me first say that I think I can definitively say, because Dr. Walvoord, of course, knew him very very well. Uh, Dr. John Walvoord, who was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary for many years and was president while I was there and served uh, on the faculty uh, for 50 years, he was very clear that Dr. Unger did not believe that a Christian could be demon-possessed. 
So what you're really reading there is is a description of what we would call demon oppression. And there is a distinct difference. Uh, Demon possession is where a demon can literally come and inhabit a person's spirit. And it can manifest itself, uh, that spirit, in very uh, outward ways. And there are biblical examples in Scripture, and there are examples in the world today where people are literally demon-possessed. We do not see it as much, obviously, here in this culture in the United States, but it's beginning to change because when people willfully open themselves up to the occult, uh, they are opening themselves up to the demonic world and potentially for demon possession. Um, How demon oppression expresses itself Uh, is somewhat debatable in terms of what it looks like. But I would agree with Dr. Unger that a person who's in habitual sin, and here's the thing, if you step outside of the Word of God, you open yourself up to deception. When you step out of uh, God's ordained authoritative structure, first himself, the Lord God, the authority of his word, and other authority structures that God has set up in the world, then we open ourselves up to deception. Classic example, of course, is uh, Eve, and Paul uh, references the fall, and he gives two reasons why a woman cannot teach or exercise authority over a man and assume the role of a pastorate. Number one is because of the order of creation. Uh, God made Adam to be the head, not because he's better, not because he's um, more qualified per se in terms of uh, the way God created him, like he's smarter than a woman or nothing like that. Uh, Obviously, you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture, Um, but because you have to have leadership. You can't have everyone being a head. And just like Christ is in submission to the Father, and the Father is called the head of Christ, we affirm in good, sound biblical theology that they are equal. The second reason he gave is because it was not Adam who was deceived, but it was Eve being deceived. How was she deceived? She stepped out of God's authority, and she opened herself up to demonic uh, deception. And in this case, the demon of demons, Satan himself. Uh, so that principle, I think, still holds to this day, and there are Christians who step out of the will of God willfully, and instead of being led by the Spirit of God, they're being led by the Spirit of this world. And uh, demons can sometimes wreak havoc even in a believer's life, not in an, uh, in a possessive way. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But they can deceive, and they can uh, you know, put a person in a situation where they begin to follow not the things of God, but the things of the world. And, you know, I, you know, people say, well, you know, I think a demon is chasing me. And more likely, most people in this life will never, um, uh, A, experience demon possession. It was still rare in the first century, though it was certainly more prevalent than it is today. It is still rare in countries where uh, people are involved heavily in the occult. Classic example would be Haiti. Uh, It's covered over in the occult, and yet when you go there, not every person is demon-possessed. But there are people there who are indeed literally, physically, actually demon-possessed. But there's a lot of people who are being deceived. And sometimes, too, Christians, let me bring it into the Christian realm, they'll say, well, you know, the the devil's chasing me. Well, you know, uh, 
Um, maybe he is just using the world system that he has crafted to pull your heart away. You know, Satan is not omnipresent, and though we don't know the exact number of demons, uh, we know there was a huge number of angels in the billions that were created. A third of them fell. Uh, so there's a lot of demonic spirits in the world. They're organized and structured in their approach. They're over regions and countries, as the book of Daniel, the 10th chapter, affirms. Uh, and they often work on a, a small number of individuals who in turn can craft and influence a larger population. So it is true, though, that when a Christian gets caught up in deception, and if they live in that deception long enough, there are verses like 1 Corinthians eleven thirty or 1 John 5 where he speaks of a sin that leads to death. And he's speaking about physical death. And where a, a Christian, you know, habitually rebels against God, and they don't necessarily have to be directly influenced by a demon, but the principle is the same in that they are living in habitual disobedience. And Paul said, for this reason, some of you are sick, some of you are weak, and some of you are asleep, a metaphor there in the context for death. Some of you have died. Some of you went home sooner than the Lord had expected uh, for you to have gone home in terms of his overall plan. Uh, God obviously is omniscient. He's not caught by surprise. So when I use the word expected, I mean in terms of the works that he had preordained for one to walk in. So anyway, um, so Dr. Unger, just to be clear, did not believe that a Christian could be demon-possessed. And that's clear from a number of books, biblical demonology, a number of works that he did. And like I say, he wrote like 50 books in his lifetime. But he did believe a Christian could be demon-oppressed. What that looks like is a little bit debatable because you can't put it in a box and say, well, that's it. That, that's, a, that's a mark of demon oppression. Well, maybe it's not. Maybe it's uh, just Satan working in the life of some filthy-minded movie uh, creator, and he's uh, putting it out there because there's three enemies that wage war against the believer, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so there are some things we blame them, blame on the devil. And James would say it had nothing to do with the devil. You were just carried away and enticed by your own fallen, sinful, Adamic lust. Or, or sometimes it's the world structure around us that's pulling us. It has nothing to do with the devil directly, but it does indirectly in that he is the one who is energizing. Paul says, "Ernergo" is the Greek. He's empowering the world system around us. Good question. Let's go to the next. So we get some done here because right. they have really stacked up. Indeed. Kyla from Aiken, South Carolina says, I'm wondering about 1 Corinthians seven fifteen. It says that yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. Does this mean that if the unbelieving spouse leaves, then the believing spouse is left free to remarry and is not committing adultery if he or she does? Well, it has to be put in the broader context of the whole chapter. Of course, 7-1 is a hinge verse in the book of 1 Corinthians concerning the things about which you wrote. So they wrote Paul some questions, and he begins to tick them off one by one by one. And he starts with the subject of marriage, singleness versus being married. Should we give our daughters in marriage in light of the controversy and the evil that's being highlighted in the world today. And so he hits a number of issues. And so, for instance, in verse 10, to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. 
And so that's in deference to what he'll say in verse 12. But to the rest, I say not the Lord. In other words, in verse 10, he's saying this is an issue that Jesus spoke to, and I'm going to give you instructions based on what he said. When he comes to verse 12, which is contextually important to answering your question in verse 15, he's going to say this is not an issue that Jesus addressed, but I am going to give you my insight on it as his apostle with the same authority. So to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So he's dealing with some situations where you might have a couple where, say, the woman is being beaten up physically or her husband's, you know, um, uh, violently hurting the children or... Uh, He's living in adulterous relationships. And Paul says, well, you have an option. You can leave. But if you leave, just remember, you have to be unmarried. You can't go out and file a legal divorce and then find a new guy. Uh, He says that based on what Jesus taught. Well, where did Jesus address this issue? Paul is taking the principles that are taught in Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 16, 18. And he reiterates those same principles in Romans 7. And even here in this passage, that marriage between a man and a woman is only to be severed by death. And so he's saying, based on that, here's your option. Stay single or be reconciled because there's always an opportunity. Then he moves a little bit later. So let me get to your question directly in verse 15 with mixed marriages. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called him to peace. So when you're in a mixed marriage, and one of the questions, of course, they had is, should we continue in a mixed marriage? And his argument just prior to this is yes, because the believing spouse may influence the unbelieving spouse. And you can, through your godly lifestyle, potentially bring that person into the kingdom. And they were in mixed marriages, one, because, you know, the gospel came to the Corinth, the city of Corinth, and some spouses believed and some did not. And so you ended up in a mixed marriage. And of course, we shouldn't produce a mixed marriage where we marry out of disobedience because a believer is not to marry an unbeliever under any circumstances, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, Now, I know people sometimes do theology by experience and they say, well, I married an unbeliever and he came to Christ. Well, praise God that he did, but you should have waited till he came to Christ before you married him. I, for that one case, I can give you 50 where that didn't happen, and the consequences sometimes are devastating. But when he says the Christian is not under bondage, people have uh, taken this in a couple of different ways. Some have said, well, the believer is not under bondage to try to maintain the marriage, in which case if the unbeliever initiates a divorce, something that a Christian shouldn't do, Uh, If the unbeliever initiates a divorce, then the person is not under bondage to maintain the marriage. They can relax their conscience. The bigger issue is, does that give them freedom to remarry? And people come on both sides of the coin on that. Most, at the least, would say, at the very least, uh, that a Christian whose unsaved spouse, say, has divorced him or her, is to remain married as long as there's a possibility that the unsaved person may return. The only thing that would shut that door, of course, would be remarriage on the part of the one who left. 
So there's actually always an opportunity for reconciliation if the person who left has not remarried. So most who are trying to be faithful to the Scripture would say, that's the um, least that you should do. You can relax your conscience and that you're not bound to try to make this thing work, that a person uh, has divorced you against your will. But at the same time, the apostle would argue that that doesn't necessarily give you freedom to just go out and remarry because people can have a change of heart. And I have married people back to each other where God did a work after they were, quote-unquote, legally divorced. Um, Some would say that if the unbeliever departs and remarries, then, then the believer has an opportunity to remarry. You can't build that from the Greek word under bondage, duleo, literally to be a slave. You can't build that from the Greek text, so you have to build it contextually. And I would argue that Paul is... um, would apply the same principle that he applied in verse 10, not to mention at the end of the chapter in verse 39, he says, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to to whomever she wishes in the Lord. So she's bound as long as he's alive. Why? Because only death is supposed to break the marriage bond. But if he's dead, then she is free to remarry but then only in the Lord, meaning to another believer in Christ. It, it's a good question. It's a hot issue, always will be. Um, so you have to study it for yourself, but that's where I come down. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we have a listener in Savannah on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, Dr. Kohlberg and Rick Porchner. My question is, you know the story about Joseph and Pharaoh, and about the dream that Pharaoh had <clears throat> that these other men couldn't interpret it. So he had so he, they called on Joseph if he can do it. What about the men who who could not interpret it, but they could have made up a lie and said it meant this, 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 and the Pharaoh would not know if it was true or false. Like today, a lot of so-called prophets they all prophesize falsely. And then they're not held accountable after the prophecy then came to, to fruition. So, so what about so if the these men for the honor of Pharaoh they could interpret a dream, but they could have made up anything, and the Pharaoh would not know if it was true or false, you know. So if Joseph interpreted, and in, why would he believe Joseph's interpretation could have been accurately true or not? I would have, I would have known that the Pharaoh would know if it was true or not because. You know, he he could have made up a lie too. Well, it's a fair question. So, uh, and of course, King Nebuchadnezzar was a little wiser in terms of his approach when uh, some of his wise men said, "Well, just tell us the dream, and we'll give you the interpretation." He says, "Well, you tell me the dream first, and then give me the interpretation." So he says, "I'm not going to tell you the dream until you tell me what the dream is." And, of course, Daniel, because it was revealed to him from the Lord, not only told him his dream, but he gave him the interpretation of the dream. And so in that sense, Nebuchadnezzar had a sense that, hey, this guy is for real because he told me the dream and I haven't told anyone else. Well, with Joseph, his credibility was also established. If you remember, there was the butler and the baker who had been in jail with him, and they both had a dream on the same night, and uh, they're both uh, they both wake up with a deep sense of, 
you know, turmoil in their heart. And Joseph interprets the dream for both of them. And when the cupbearer is restored, and of course the the other fellow, the the baker, Joseph said, "Well, actually, you're 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 going to die." And oh man, and he dies, and the cupbearer is restored, and. And he doesn't go to the pharaoh and say, hey, let me tell you, there's a guy down there in the jail that, you know, we ought to give some attention to. And um, so it's not until a crisis point in the pharaoh's life. And again, it's providential. God is orchestrating the circumstances that the um, cupbearer says, hey, you know, there's a guy in prison. Let me tell you exactly what happened. And he gives us t- detailed dreams of both men and then how Joseph interpreted the dreams and how the details were literally fulfilled. That was enough for the Pharaoh to embrace it. And so Joseph said what happened and he gives God the credit. And and not only does he say what happens, but then it begins to be fulfilled with the seven years of plenty. And the Pharaoh is thinking, this is exactly what this man has said. And then when the seventh year is over, they don't have an eighth year of plenty, but they have seven more years of just unparalleled famine. So there are some evidences both before and during the dream that would have given the Pharaoh, of course, a full sense of confidence. Uh, With that said, these people today who are making prophecies, some guy I don't even, never heard of him before, but it was on the internet last week and someone sent me an article and he had foretold that God had said, and he's got this huge following that Donald J. Trump was definitely going to be the president of the United States. And he was still preaching that on January the 6th and it's going to happen. And, you know, God has shown me and now he's apologizing and, well, you know, in under the law, according to the book of Deuteronomy, Moses would have said he should have been stoned to death. You know, and there's other people like Pat Robinson. He made all kinds of predictions that did not come true. And these guys who, you know, do these things because it creates a following and it creates a, a, a huge mass of people who are gullible and untaught and are not taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Uh, let's go to the next one. Eight four three five two five one eight five nine. If you have a question on today's Bible line, an anonymous listener in Virginia would like you to comment on what you think of the recently released NASB twenty twenty version. Well, I I went online um, over a month ago and read what the Lockman Foundation had put out for the first time publicly in terms of their um, commitment to the integrity of Scripture, to not gender-blurring the issues, uh, yet at the same time to try to communicate to the generation that we live in because words have become so politicized and redefined that it is essential for a translation to be faithful to the original. So when we teach, for instance, about men being sinful, are, are we referring to women as well? Of course we are. And so there are places in Scripture, and they are very clear in their explanation when the word that's used is a a word that could apply to both the male and female sex, you know, like brethren. When Paul says brethren, is he excluding women in the church? Clearly not. That was just an idiomatic Hebrew expression that included 
men and women alike. And so in the new NASB that is just being released uh, this month, uh, they'll put brothers and then in parentheses in an italics to show that this is an interpretive decision and sisters. So right now, if you have the NASB, when a word is not included in the original, but it's implied in the Greek, then they put the word, uh, the English word in italics. Sometimes it's implied or sometimes it has to be put in there or the sentence grammatically does not make sense in, in English. And so that's the challenge when you're going from an original language to a receptor language. So I'll give you an example, for instance, in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, he's speaking about um, marriage, and he has just said in verse uh, 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And then he says in the verb, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So he's talking to all Christians, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then it says wives, and then the next two words, be subject, are in italics. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, if you'd read and studied Greek, you would know that that was implied and they do what they call verb sharing. And so it's sharing the verb from verse 21. And so though the word be subject is not found in verse 22, um, it is implied through the rules of Greek grammar that he's speaking about wives being subject to their own husbands. And by the way, there are untaught feminists who will point that out and say, well, you see, that's just added by some you know, male chauvinistic translators, and and that's not part of the original. And they're just trying to say that, you know, we want to teach male headship. Well, in the parallel text, in Colossians 3.18, it says, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And in that context, he hasn't just given the command like he did in Ephesians 5 verse 21 where it shares the verb it stands all by itself and there's no italics there which would tell the English reader that that's in the original so they're already doing this and most translations have to do this because again when you take an original language and you put it into a receptive receptor tongue you have to make it flow with a certain amount of um, grammar rules that need to be reflected in English. So, for instance, sometimes in Greek, the very first word of the subject of the sentence is a verb. Well, we don't start in our English grammar uh, a, a sentence typically with a verb. It's subject, verb, object. But in Greek, it doesn't always work that way. So even the word order has to be changed sometimes. So from everything I've read so far, and this was put out by the Lockman Foundation. Uh, I think the New American Standard 2020 will continue to remain the gold standard of probably the best single literal translation. I've ordered my copy through the Lockman Foundation. It has not come yet, but I should see it any day now, and I will do my own careful analysis. Uh, it is online, and I've typed in a number of passages online out of curiosity. Hey, how are they going to handle this passage or that text? And I've yet to see anything that causes me 
uh, any kind of, you know, um, I'm not upset with the translation at all so far. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Patty from Beaufort writes, with all of the evil in the world, considering we are all born with a sin nature, but some of us, some of us, thanks to the Lord, have been redeemed, I struggle a lot with the upcoming conflict in our country. I see that we are bound to lose a lot of our freedoms that have been purchased with blood. Maybe I'm just afraid of losing earthly comforts of love and family. And maybe I'm struggling with people who are clearly colluding to take rights from the nation and building up foment through false news, similar to Hitler and many other despots and the Romans of Jesus' day. And I know we're told to love our enemies and foreigners, uh, to forgive 70 times 7, pay the government what belongs to them, not to judge. Jesus is the only true judge. But what stance are we as Christians to take? We can vote, see how that worked out. Should we accept this, roll over and take it? The defunding of police, blaming them for everything, dishonoring our history. But our military has fought our wars to protect our freedom and the wars of other countries. So when is it justifiable to rebel and fight? Well, it's a good question. I I did a sermon recently on God and government, and I use as my launching pad, 1 Peter 2, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, but don't use your freedom, he says, as a covering for evil. But as bond slaves of God, honor all people, love the brethren, fear God, honor the king. So we are to honor all people in a broad sense because they're all made in the image and likeness of God. And that's a principle that we live with daily with all the different folks that you interface with. And uh, maybe they don't respond the way you want them to might be someone that you are interfacing with in a local store or restaurant or through a business, and you just remember they're made in the image of God and your testimony's at stake, and honor the king. And, of course, Nero is king uh, when Peter writes this and when Paul gives similar um, instructions in Romans 13. So there's a sense in which we are to submit to the government. Now, in the broadest sense, probably most people listening to this station are protesters and that we would call ourselves Protestants and that we don't ascribe to Roman Catholic theology that denies grace alone through faith alone. That's not to say, of course, that there are not Roman Catholics who are born again, who have departed from what their church officially teaches, a denial of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And through their study of Scripture, or maybe listening to a station like this, or some pastor somewhere, or a friend who shared the gospel with them, they have become born again. Uh, you cannot deny salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and expect to go into heaven someday. It is a cardinal doctrine. So in that sense, I'm a protester. And there were Christians like the Puritans who, when they were living in England, uh, the Queen of England was the head of the church. And by the way, she remains to be the head of the church to this day. And for the Puritans, they were basically being told that they couldn't embrace certain practices. And so rather than just submit, they left. And they said, well, we're just going to leave because they wanted to be able to practice their faith 
without, you know, creating an unnecessary stir. Uh, There are times when I think a believer is compelled to protest, even to this day. I remember Kim Davis. Most of us know her. She was like a clerk. I think she was in Tennessee, if I remember, and she refused to uh, do a marriage license for a gay couple. And there should have been more clerks who refused if they were born-again Christians. And she went to jail for a period of time for it. Uh, She lost her job because of it. Well, okay, Uh, she was doing the right thing. Uh, She couldn't violate her conscience and do something that God calls an abomination. A person may call it a marriage, but it's not a marriage. The government may call it a marriage. It's not a marriage. It's just an act of an abomination. Um, So there are times to protest, but we should certainly uh, be salt and light and be careful that we do not have a spirit of non-submissiveness. I think of uh, 1 Samuel 15, where Samuel addressed Saul, and he said, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. And because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. But I think the, the analogy there is really shivering to compare rebellion to the sin of divination. God doesn't like an unsubmissive spirit. And it's only as we're under authority that God entrusts authority to us. And so as believers, we should have a spirit of submissiveness unless, of course, the government is asking us to do something that's contrary to Scripture. Now, you say, well, we voted, and look where that got us. Well, let's just say for the sake of argument, and I'm sure there are people who are listening to me who are thinking the election was stolen. Others are saying it was not stolen. We don't have evidence for it. That's neither here nor there for the statement I am about to make. I hope you realize that unless there is fundamentally, radically, a change of heart in the American people, that our way of life in our way of looking at things that we have enjoyed historically as Americans because of our Judeo-Christian ethic is going to be gone. And it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Listen, when these Generation X and Y and Z people come into the leadership of our nation, the way they think, the way an 18 to 25-year-old thinks as a non-Christian is very, very different from the way a non-Christian thinks who's 60. Very, very different, because even the 60-year-old has been salted through decades of Christian influence where he might find certain behaviors repulsive. He might find certain forms of government, like socialism, that's being driven into the minds of college students across America. There is a law in America excuse me, in South Carolina that says that the Constitution and Federalist Papers and Declaration of Independence is supposed to be taught in every institution of higher learning in this state. And virtually all of them, including USC and Clemson, have bucked it. And the president of one of those two schools recently got up on the floor of the South Carolina Senate and said, oh, we're going to keep this law. And then they sent in lobbyists last week to try to alter the wording of the law so that they don't really have to keep it. Why? Because some of these people are just confirmed socialists, and they have no intention of teaching traditional values 
that Americans have held to. I'm not just talking about moral values. I'm talking about governmental values. And the governmental values that we have traditionally held to were based on Scripture. But that is fast being lost. And so we need to keep first things first. The main thing needs to be the main thing. Our hope is not to be in the government systems of this world. And what should drive us should not be first and foremost politics. It should be the Great Commission. Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save. And we're to be involved in going and making disciples. And so when I meet some of these Christians who are always whining about, you know, the government, I want to ask, when was the last time you tried to take someone through the plan of salvation? And sadly, many of them can't even remember. That's the problem in America. Christians have stopped sharing Christ as a way of life. And when that happens long enough, you'll have less and less conversions. Just look at the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest association of um, evangelical churches in the United States. And the baptisms have been going down for the last 20 years. And so now they're getting difficult to measure at all. And you have like 40% of the churches who did not a single baptism last year. What's happening? Christians are no longer sharing their faith. And when that happens long enough, uh, this nation will implode from within. And we know, too, that there's coming a time where you won't be able to stop this. Because we know Jesus spoke of a point in human history where things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse. There's going to be a great reset for a one-world kind of government with a one-world leader. And it appears we're moving very fast in that direction. That doesn't change my responsibility to be salt and light. That doesn't change my responsibility as a pastor to, one, pray for my president, but, two, to speak out when he... Uh, has a policy that is totally bent against the Word of God, and he's done a number of them already by executive order. So don't be discouraged and remind yourself. And I I had a lady who called from Maine last week, and she wanted to know if she could have a 15-minute appointment with me, and I spoke to her on the phone, and she said, I'm just so discouraged and almost despondent, and I find myself crying during the day around my children and what's happening to my nation. And I said, well, your joy is not to be found on whether Donald Trump or Joe Biden is the president of the United States. Your joy is to be found in a relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. And you're not, you are to walk with him. And Jesus said, when these things happen, don't be frightened because they have to happen. They're going to lead up to this one world rebellion that will be against the Lord. And it just seems to me the stage is being set for the very rebellion that we're speaking of. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and we just had somebody dictate a question, they would like you to please comment on the Ravi Zacharias situation. Well, very sad. You know, obviously very sad for, um, I, I feel especially for his family you know, that this thing had been going on a couple of decades with habitual uh, immorality. Very, very sad. And, you know, part of the problem was is he was not really involved in a local church assembly. You know, when you're traveling here, there, and everywhere, and you're not under a local church and under a local church's, you know, teaching and authority and accountability, that's not healthy for anyone. 
And this guy was on the road 24-7, which in my view was a huge mistake, and a huge mistake on his board, whoever they are, because their names are not published. So who's ever on his board, uh, they had a less than uh, faithful commitment that to the local church, and, and that should never be dismissed. And so this idea that, well, you know, I'm an apologist and I just travel the country. Well, I'm not real big on apologetics as Ravi Zacharias would, you know, handle them to begin with. That doesn't change the fact that a lot of the things that he taught were true and right. But I would not put the same emphasis on apologetics as a lot of Christians do today. They think that the answer is apologetics, and the answer is not apologetics. The answer is preaching the gospel faithfully, living a life of integrity, and believing God to give you open doors in which to share the plan of salvation with people. That's what's critical. Um, We spend all this time on trying to, quote-unquote, prove the existence of God with people. The Scripture doesn't spend any time on that. It assumes it, and so there's a lot of a apologetics today that are based on things that aren't even found in Scripture. So it's just very sad, you know, what has happened and what has come out. And I don't know why they continue to meet. They should, in my opinion, immediately dissolve the organization. And being a 501c3, they should distribute the assets to other 501c3 organizations. But they shouldn't continue to exist and why they're paying these outside consultants and using God's money that God's people have given is, is beyond me. But, but it, it's a sad situation. Anyway, I could spend all day on it. I won't. Let's go to the next question. Anthony G. from Beaufort says, I'm curious to know where Dr. Brogy stands on the free grace lordship salvation debate. I'm currently reading So Great Salva- a Salvation by Charles Ryrie and The Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur. These are both men that I greatly respect and both make excellent arguments for their stance on the subject. However, both cannot be right. What say ye, Dr. Brogy? Thank you for your time. Well, I think both can be right if they're both rightly understood. Uh, Dr. Charles Ryrie was a great expositor of Scripture. He taught at Dallas Seminary for decades. Um, And he was responding as much as anything to those individuals who front-loaded the gospel, who made repentance a work. Listen, Jesus said the man who sins is dead in his sin. He's a slave to his sin. He can't free himself. And so there has to be a work of the Spirit of God that happens before we can genuinely believe. But you cannot clean up your act to come to Christ. But you must be willing to come to Christ for him to change your life, for him to clean up your act. Otherwise, you don't need a Savior. If you don't really acknowledge sin as sin, you don't need a Savior. And so if a person's living in homosexuality or transgenderism or fornication or drunkenness or adultery or self-righteousness or greed or whatever it is that drives their life, until they're willing to come to grips with their sin. There's no need for a Savior. But remember, the cause of sins, plural, is sin singular. What is the root of all sin? It's the attitude that Jesus described in Luke's gospel where they said, we do not want this one, referring to Jesus, to reign over us, to be our king. And so for some people, that results in gross immorality. Other unsaved people live 
from the world's perspective, a relatively clean life. They're faithful to their spouse. They never, you know, break the law of the land. They're good, upright citizens, but they are still rebels at heart. We all are. They don't really consult God. Who do you want me to marry? What should I do uh, to earn a living? Where should I live? Uh, They just make those decisions themselves because they are the Lord of their own life. And so what you need to be careful with here is there are some people in the so-called free grace movement who say, well, you can receive Jesus as your Savior and then live however you want. And of course, a Roman Catholic theologian that I quoted in Sunday's sermon as I've been working through the book of James with our congregation, where James talks about faith without works is dead. And James is speaking about justification, not before um, God, but before men. Paul is dealing with justification before God. He's dealing with inward justification. James is dealing with outward justification. Paul is dealing with the root of justification. James is dealing with the fruit. And so James is dealing with if you have a truly genuine faith, it's more than just an intellectual knowledge of certain biblical truths. For the demons believe, to use his example, that God is one. That's the great statement of orthodoxy. Hero Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. In other words, you can be orthodox in your theology and still be as lost as a demon. That's James's point. And so, uh, there are folks who are in the free grace movement, and I would not include Dr. Ryrie in that, who basically say what Carl Keating, the Roman Catholic apologist, accuses evangelicals of, though he doesn't call us evangelicals, he calls us fundamentalists. He says that we think you just receive Jesus as your Savior and you can live however you want. That's just a straw man. It's not true. On the other side, in the MacArthur camp, he's really reacting to that. But we need to be careful, too, that take the Gospel of John, for instance. The Gospel of John, many other things were written in this book that he didn't record, but he says, these things have been written, why? So that you might believe Jesus is the Messiah, and in believing you might have life in his name. So John is telling us that one of the purposes, and this is, by the way, the only book in the whole New Testament telling us that it was written, among other reasons, with an evangelistic purpose, the Gospel of John is that people might be saved, and yet never once does the word repentance appear in the Gospel of John. So technically, you ought to be able to preach the plan of salvation without using the word repentance. It's not wrong to use it. Jesus said, unless you repent, you perish. But implicit in genuine faith is repentance. When you come to Jesus, you're coming as a sinner who needs to be forgiven and changed. And if that's not a person's hard attitude— and that forgiveness and change based on the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ alone, then they're not going to get saved. I've said it many times that a person who's not commandable is not savable. Um, If God can't command your life, you have great reason to believe that you may not be a true disciple of his. So um, let's be consistent here because sometimes the way the Lordship Salvationist Camp, for instance, shares the gospel with a child is very different than they would with an adult. Well, wait a minute. It's the same gospel. It doesn't change for a child or for the teenager or for an elderly person. It's the same plan of salvation. So we don't want to front load the gospel where we make repentance a work 
because it is not. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. But as the reformers taught, though you can't find anyone who specifically said this, but they taught it. Calvin is often credited with the phrase, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Well, you can't find that anywhere in his writings, but he taught that, as did the other reformers, that we're saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. Why? Because the grace of God that brings us salvation, if it really has brought us salvation, teaches us. So he goes from a broad sense to us. It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Titus chapter 2. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Tina says, I have a stepson who says that he is a Buddhist. What is the best way to approach this? Well, pray for him earnestly. And most of the time, I'm assuming, Tina, that you yourself were not a Buddhist, but you you are a believer and maybe raised him up to be that way. And now he's embracing Buddhism. Why do people embrace false religions when they have been raised under the truth. One simple reason, it's a moral issue. There's a moral issue that's driving your son's decision. Some aspect of God's truth that it's either written in Holy Scripture or written in his heart that he is rebelling against. And so all of a sudden, your son whom you raised up in the church says, well, I'm not sure the Bible's true or I'm not sure there's a heaven or a hell, or I don't think there's a heaven or a hell, or I don't think there's a God, or I think Buddhism is right, or I think I should follow Confucius. You're dealing with a person who is struggling on the inside with a moral issue. So you want to pray for him um, because, again, very often it's a man's theology is dictated by his morality, Joseph Smith, class A example, and there are scores of them littered throughout time of people who wanted to live wickedly, and so they denied the truth. With that said, you pray for him and remind him that ultimately what he believes is a Buddhist is based on something. It's either based on man's thoughts or God's thoughts. And so the question he must ask and answer for himself, is the Bible God's inspired holy word? It claims to be It says it's the only book that God ever wrote, as we see at the end of the Revelation. I have a whole sermon on that. I think it's my next to the last sermon in the Revelation series. Um, And certainly it has left within itself certain evidences that show it is the only book God wrote. And I have a little booklet. You can find it on Amazon, How to Prove the Bible is True. Just go to Amazon, type in Carl Brogy, How to Prove the Bible is True, and that booklet will come up, and that would be a great little thing to for you to bone up on and maybe give to your son to read and get him to think about it. Listen, Buddha didn't claim to be God. Jesus claimed to be God, claimed to be the only one who could forgive him. Uh, he's not saying I'm a good way to God. He's not even saying I'm the best way to God. He's saying I'm the only way to God, and if he's not the only way to God, he's no way to God. Because to say he's the only way and not be, he's either a liar or a deceiver. So the claims are so narrow and so specific and so authoritative, you can't believe both for both to be true. So anyway, let's go to the next one. All right, Bill from Stephen City, Virginia writes, What role or function or capacity will the Holy Spirit have beyond the millennium? John fifteen twenty six and John sixteen seven call him the helper, but 
when we're in our glorified bodies, doesn't that change things for the Holy Spirit? Please help us with this. Well, good question. So you might want to take my course on pneumatology. And in part two of pneumatology, I uh, basically trace the work of the Holy Spirit through history, starting in creation, because he was involved in the creation of the world, his work in the prophets and the various craftsmen, the different judges, civil rulers, kings. Uh, and then we move out of the Old Testament. We look at the Holy Spirit's role uh, between the birth of Christ, between Bethlehem and Pentecost. He was obviously involved in the incarnation. He was involved in Christ's baptism. He strengthened Jesus after the temptation. He preached through Jesus. He did certain miracles, even through the apostles prior to uh, the coming of Pentecost and he's involved in the resurrection. Then we look at, in that series, the role of the Holy Spirit from Pentecost to the rapture. That's the age that we're in right now. And then we look at his role from the rapture um, through the tribulation period to Christ's second coming, because he'll be at work then bringing people into the kingdom, though his restraining influence through the church will be removed. And then we, before we finish with eternity future, we look at his role during the millennial reign of Christ. And so the millennial reign of Christ will follow his thousand-year reign on earth. When he comes to the Mount of Olives at the second coming, he will begin to rule and reign after some things are enacted for a thousand years. Well, what will he be needed for? Well, remember, when people enter into the millennial reign of Messiah, some of us will enter into that reign with glorified bodies, Old Testament saints, church saints. But those who survive the tribulation period, they will enter into the millennial reign in their natural bodies. That is, believers who survive. All unbelievers who survive will be excluded and sent to Hades until the final judgment at the end of the millennial reign of the Messiah. So those believers who enter during their natural, in their natural bodies will be able to have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. It appears that most of them will live the full thousand years unless they come under the disciplining hand of the Lord Jesus himself. And so their children will have to make a decision for Jesus. And many of them will not because at the end of the thousand years, the scripture is clear. Satan, who had been bound for that thousand years, will be loosed. And then um, he will tempt those who did not become believers who were born during the tribulation. So his ministry is very much needed. Anyway, I hope that helps, but you might want to listen to that course on pneumatology. It's at searchthescriptures.org for a really detailed answer. Thanks for joining us today for the Bible Line. I hope you have a great day as you walk with Christ. 